Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, I had an opportunity to sit down with recently retired Chief Phil Hansen. Chief Hansen spent most of his career at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, where he served in a variety of assignments, with most of that time spent in the Special Enforcement Bureau. He also served on the board of directors at the NTOA and organized its first ever regional training exercise. Not long after retiring from LESD, he was asked to join the Santa Maria Police Department, where he eventually became the chief. I'm going to be honest with you all here. I am a huge fan of Chief Hansen. He has a veteran's cop sense of humor coupled with humility and the wisdom of someone who's practiced the art of leadership for decades. I do want to apologize for a technical recording issue, but if you can bear with it, I think you'll agree the content that Chief Hansen brings is a combination of leadership genius coupled with humility, humor, and a true genuine love for our profession and the people who serve. Chief Phil Hansen, welcome to the show. Thanks for being uh, with Brent and I today. And for those uh, listeners that haven't had an opportunity to see you speak or uh, meet you at uh, Cato or NTOA events, would you mind giving us a, just a little synopsis of your extensive background and experience? Well, Marcus, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me on board. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. And uh, you bet. Uh, I just retired in this, this past January, uh, at the end of December 2020. I, I retired after 44 years, uh, to start my 45th year in this business. I started out back in uh, 1976 as a reserve deputy sheriff with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And Absolutely loved it. So within two years, I, I went through the regular academy then and, and started in 1978 uh, as a full-time deputy sheriff in Los Angeles County. And, and I did 36 years down there on the sheriff's department and retired as a captain. During my service with LASD, uh, the majority of my time actually was in um, positions where I was working in tactical operations or uh, you know, manage, crisis management, if you will. I uh, spent 13 years as a, as a team leader at SCP, a full-time uh, SWAT team, entry team leader at SCP. Then went back to SCP, spent another six years as the team commander, the lieutenant there, the SWAT team commander. So just short of 20 years at the Bureau. And then uh, spent another three, four years at the Emergency Operations Bureau uh, doing things like large uh, law, law enforcement mutual aid, response to large uh, events, uh, uh, crisis management, like uh, civil disobedience, wildland fires, you know, fl- fires, floods, earthquakes, riots, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and eventually retired at the rank of captain from the sheriff's department. And then a couple of years later, one year later to the day, actually, I came up to Santa Maria, the city of Santa Maria, which is on the central coast, about uh, 120,000 people, a department with uh, 140 officers now. And and about 60 professional staff and uh, worked as a commander for three years, uh, just about four years actually, and then took the chief of police job and and finished up there as the chief of police. I did three and a half years as the chief and just retired in January. Um, Along the way, I've always had a passion for for tactics and for uh, the SWAT arena primarily. I got involved with the NTOA back in the 80s, uh, teaching, and uh, uh, actually started instructing for the NTOA in 1991. 
uh, eventually became a member of the board of directors, was an elected board member for 20 years, uh, chief, uh, was the chairman of the board for five, and I still currently serve as a, a director emeritus. That means I'm an old guy that they ask advice of now and again, you know, and, uh, uh, and it's always been wonderful to be a member of Cato, be a member of NTOA. And I think that that's an obligation as a tactical professional to uh, maintain your education and stay involved in professional organizations like Cato and, and NTOA. And um, golly, I guess that's about it. Uh, got a, <laughs> that's that's a lot. <laughs> got a, got a, a yeah, as a young man, got a business degree at Cal State Northridge, and then as a as an older guy, I went back to school. And because I have a, a quite frankly a passion for leadership, I've seen poor leadership. Uh, I've, I've benefited from good leadership and good mentorship, and I've seen poor leadership uh, destroy organizations, both large and small. So uh, I've got kind of a passion for that. And I went back to uh, USC and got my master's degree in in, in leadership there. And uh, I think that's something you need to work on your whole career as well. If you're in a leadership position, you have to keep striving to get better at that. So anyway, that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. So now I'm, I'm uh, wondering what the next chapter of life brings at this point. Well, I think uh, on behalf of Brent, congratulations, sir. You, you definitely you. put your time in and you definitely give them back to all of us uh, at the national and state level. Uh, you know, uh, Several times we've asked you to speak for us and you've been gracious with your time to talk about leadership and uh, some of the lessons you've learned. And so I, I kind of wanted to touch on those things because it meant a lot to me the first time I heard you speak. And uh, I know I pester you every time I see you with a bunch of questions and scenarios yeah. that uh, I've come across in my career and, and I found them, you know, just super valuable. So I'd be remiss okay. if I didn't ask you, you know, what do you think some of the keys to, to your success uh, for such a long career and so much opportunity you've been able to take advantage of? Um, Marcus, I would say, uh, well, I think I've been very fortunate. I've been lucky, you know, uh, but I also, um, I still have a passion for what we do. Uh, and I think having a passion for your mission is important. You know, I think, uh, the, the kind of people that are, that are listening or watching this podcast, uh, uh, are the kind of people that have a passion for their mission. That's why they take the extra time to do this. So I think I'll understand this. Uh, if you go through your, your career and you care about your mission, you care about what it is you do for a living, and then you care about your people that you're leading. Uh, I love the people I've worked with in this job. I think it attracts wonderful people. And uh, it, makes it, it makes it easier, quite frankly. And... Uh, uh, it's, it's, I guess if I've been successful, it's because I've enjoyed what I've done and I've loved the people I've worked with and, and try to take good care of them. And that, that pays back, you know, it pays you back and uh, they perform for you. Your unit does well, your, your department does well, uh, depending on what level of leadership you have. And uh, uh, I think, uh, I think that's the key to the success is just, just caring about what you do and trying not to focus on yourself. Uh, maybe we'll talk about this at some point today, but there was a, there was a period in my career, uh, it was a short one, but there was a short period in my career uh, in Los Angeles where uh, uh, I got a little malcontent. I felt like I wasn't getting my due on some stuff and whatnot, and I did a little soul searching, and I realized that, uh, that uh, 
I was focusing on myself a little bit more than I should have and not my people and my mission. And uh, once I got back to the basics and doing what I was supposed to do, things all smoothed out again, you know? So uh, I, I know you're gonna ask me at some point about advice for people, you know, uh, leaders. Uh, that's one of my pieces of advice is, uh, especially in the SWAT arena or the tactical arena, because of the consequences of failure can be so great. If your focus is not on your people and your mission, if your focus is on yourself, do everybody a favor and find a different assignment. You know, there are places that you can excel within the law enforcement arena. Uh, uh, there you can excel while you kind of um, are looking at polishing your own resume or whatever. I guess the uh, SWAT is not the place to do that, or uh, you know, a tactical job is not the place to do that because there's too much at risk on something like that. So. Uh, that's, I think that's something that we see across law enforcement, not just limited in the tactical community, but throughout the organization as a whole. As you know, our listeners are are, are comprised of, um, of SWAT officers, but oftentimes mm -hmm. people across um, organizations through across the ranks, you know, admin uh, admin nerds like me and, and different things like that. And we, I think a lot of organizations, we see that where we see some people that um, they get jaded or become, like I said, a little bit of... Uh, not content with kind of where they are. Maybe they feel yeah. like the organization isn't recognizing their work or the yep. things that they're doing. And, and you are self-aware and, and perceptive enough to be able to see it and to kind of be introspective about it. How have you dealt with situations like that as the chief or when you were the, the captain at your previous organization or even um, you know, your previous department? When you when you saw those things, or when people would come to talk to you about those things, is that is that something that you saw throughout uh, throughout your career? Yeah, and there, you know what? Sometimes it, you can't deal with it. You know, uh, I'll tell you one thing about being a good leader: it's going to create conflict for you sometimes. You know, I'm not saying you should go out and take everybody on all the time. I, I actually try to be um, as um, I've always considered myself diplomatic. <laughs> you know, I, I try to be as diplomatic and not, uh, you know, turn everything into a cat fight or anything. But, but uh, um, I think that, you know, you're going to, as a good leader, sometimes you're going to be put in a position where uh, if, if you take a stand, you're probably going to come out on the short end, you know, on things. And, and so come out on the short end. Uh, I, I, it goes back to my point about um, um, maybe looking for a different position or something if it's the right thing for you to do. Um, um, your definition of winning, my definition of winning it, it, or success in a career is not what rank did you achieve before you left. Uh, to me, it's more about can you look yourself in the mirror, uh, look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and, and feel as though you were true to yourself and your principles and you did a good job. Uh, are you welcome at that meeting of retirees or that meeting of uh, uh, SWAT officers or whatever, uh, when it's all over, are you, are you welcomed as a uh, contributor and somebody that took care of their people or are you seen as an interloper, you know, somebody that uh, was, was more looking out for themselves, you know? And uh, the, the plain fact of the matter is uh, good leaders usually take a beating somewhere along the way and they usually find themselves at conflict with somebody that's superior to them in rank along the way, and they'll take a beating. The good guys don't always win in the sense of accolades and promotion. Uh, the good guys win 
in terms of uh, how they're perceived by their peers, by the other good people, by the other contributors, you know. So you have to kind of redefine your your uh, sense of what winning is to some degree too, or, or being successful, I should say. I think, uh, you know, that's something that I, I really struggle with. I consider myself kind of the same thing. I try to be diplomatic. I want to be a consensus builder. I care tremendously, love the people that we work with. As organizations get bigger, it's harder to communicate things um, and your perspective and your thought process and your philosophy. And I find that um, I walk away discouraged a lot of times. Yeah. That I've, I, I'm trying to do the right thing. I believe I'm doing the right thing. Like I said, I, I don't want to fight about everything, but you know, I, I, hills are worth dying on sometimes, but yeah. also uh, up the chain as well as down the chain, being able to communicate those things and and uh, you know it, it sucks to hear you say, well, morale is hurt because of this decision that you, that you make. And that's kind of when you talk about taking a beating. That's uh, that's something I've really um, grappled with and yeah. kind of struggling with in, in this position, trying to get my feet underneath me on on how to be able to communicate your thought process, your perspective, and you know to to lead to set the pace for where it's going to go, but also make sure that you're not the one that's completely in in left field. And yeah. It's a yeah. tough position that you're talking about, where you you don't you're not just chasing public uh, uh, approval, but at right. the same time, if you if there is public disapproval, it's, it would look at yourself in the mirror because maybe you maybe you are um, yep. out of your pocket a little bit, and that's that's something I really struggled with. And um, you know, hearing you say that is that something that that um, you had to to deal with or ever dealt with at all? Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty broad. Uh, Absolutely, uh, Brett. It's uh, um, I think that um, when you talk about are you in left field or not, communications is the uh, one of the most important, absolutely most important things you can do. Uh, I'm a huge uh, believer that that listening to your people, and you talked about the people below you, you know, listening to their input and getting them involved as much as you can in the decision making process. Uh, is absolutely crucial uh, to stay on track. Uh, uh, multiple minds think better than one. You know, your people have value. They have things that they can contribute to your decision-making process. And, and I'll tell you, there's a paradox, I think, in leadership. Uh, I call it a, a listening paradox. I think that new leaders in particular, but, but you know, a, a lot of leaders, feel that it's their job as they go up through the ranks uh, and they take on more responsibility that they are senders of information that they're supposed to make the decisions and send information all the time they're they're a, a micro a, a megaphone if you will and i think that the paradox there is that it's the farther up the chain you go the more important it is that you listen more than you talk and you and you get input from your people and and you get them involved in the decision making, and uh, uh, because you're going to make better decisions, sound decisions, and they're going to be uh, there's going to be more buy-in from the people that you're leading if they have the opportunity to have input on the thing, and they know you're listening to them. It, listening to people is how you uh, convey respect to them, among other things, you know. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's it's more important as you go up through the ranks that you listen to what your folks have to say and that you get them involved in the process. And then you're responsible for the final decisions. And uh, sometimes it's gonna be at cross purposes with them, but at least you've given them the benefit of, of, uh, 
of having input on the thing and you uh, had a chance to, as you said, explain your position well too on things. And, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're gonna really come out ahead if, if it's a, um, a process that, that involves a collaboration, you know, with your folks too. So um, anyway, that's, that's a, big, a big thing with me as, you know, I had these, and uh, this my last job here as the chief of police uh, in Santa Maria, I had three really wonderful commanders, but they were all three of them different as night and day from one another. They were all hardworking, ethical, intelligent, uh, experienced officers, but they all had very different outlooks on things. Uh, one was very administrative and liability conscious in nature. One of them was uh, more uh, conciliatory. One of them, yeah, one of them was very in tune with his people and this kind of stuff. And I would love to get those three together. And here's where you really hit the sweet spot where you develop a an atmosphere to where they all feel comfortable giving their opinions in front of one another, even though they're different, you know, and as a leader, you've got to keep your mouth shut because if you give your opinion first, then you're, you're liable to taint theirs a little bit or have them, you know, say, oh, he's already made up his mind. I'll just go along with him. You know, but if you can get a sweet spot to where everybody feels comfortable in actually saying what's on their mind, it gave me a tremendous array of ideas, you know, to hear from these three different guys and they learn from each other. And I, I could uh, then add my own, uh, you know, beliefs and, and experience to the to the process and make what I thought was the best decision on things, you know. So, so uh, that's that's good collaborative leadership, you know, is what you're looking for, as, as you know, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. I think you answered it, but I'll, I'll you kind of led into, mm -hmm. um, you know, what are some things that you know now at the end of your career that you wish you had known younger to save you from maybe some of those bumps in the road or lessons yeah. learned? You know, that's an interesting one, Marcus. I, uh, you know, you, you, you were kind enough to give me a couple of bullet points to look at, you know, that you might talk about. That was one of the tougher ones on there for me to tell you the truth. Uh, I don't know, because it's a, it, it is a process, you know, uh, uh, you learn as you go along and I don't, you know, know that there would have been huge difference. I, I'll tell you, there, there is one thing I, as a young leader, as a young sergeant, young team leader, um, I, I kind of wished I realized that I didn't have to be one of the guys as much, you know, I mean, uh, um, you, you sometimes you want to be, especially at that sergeant rank, you know, you still want to be one of the, one of the guys or gals or whatever, you know, and, uh, and you're really not. And the farther up you go up the chain, of course, it's 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 virtually impossible to be one of the one of them, you know. And uh, I, I probably engaged in some immature activity, did some goofy stuff as a young uh, young sergeant or whatnot to to be to go along with the be part of the crowd, you know, and want to be accepted. And really, uh, that's not what they need, you know. What they need is to know that you care about them. You're going to take care of them you know, and, uh, and look out for them. And then they'll, then they'll accept you, you know, they just need to know where your heart is, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, that's the temptation as a young, as, as a young supervisor, I think, is to, uh, you know, I love being a sergeant. Uh, I was a sergeant for 16 years. And uh, it was my favorite rank to, to this day. It's the rank I probably identify with most because you were a worker bee still, especially at a place like SUB. Uh, you were uh, on the entry team, you know, the entry team leader, and you were a, uh, 
back when I started in that business, we were still going to patrol a day or two a week. You know, we'd go do saturation patrol in busy areas where they were having a lot of shootings or whatever. And so you're working a radio car with a partner. And, and uh, so you were one of the one of the guys, you know, since that you were still a worker bee and yet you were the supervisor. And uh, and I loved it. And it's a, obviously that's a, a, a job that requires being able to kind of straddle that fence a little bit, you know. But as you go up, you know, farther through the ranks, uh, you know, you can't afford to do that so much. And, and uh, you're but you're just uh, the admin guy after that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're that, uh, you know, especially if four lieutenants, you know, lieutenants are one of those, uh, uh, that rank that everybody uh, throws under the bus, you know, the troops think you're management, management thinks you're uh, something else, you know, and uh, they kind of take a beating, but it's another critical job as well. Every job along the chain has a very important um, role to fulfill. And we've all suffered through bad ones, you know, I mean, everybody thinks, uh, you know, hey, we got this handle, we don't need lieutenants, we don't need sergeants, or we don't need chiefs or whatever. And uh, that's usually uh, when they've got good ones that they feel like that. When when they have a bad one, that's when they're really suffering and they wish they had a good one. You know. <laughs> anyway, they they every rank has something to contribute along the way. <laughs> Lee, that's uh yeah, it's uh I, I agree. I thought sergeant was the job that uh you know the troops are kind of happy with you, but all the way, and the lieutenants aren't happy with you all the way. Then you're probably yeah. doing the good thing, and then yeah. uh. And now as a lieutenant, I think to myself, man, uh, the big boss thinks I spend too much money and the, uh, <laughs> and the sergeants are like, you're cheap. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And, yeah, uh, you're, you're really middle management. Uh, it's yeah. Road to, to hoe, it really is. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, they'll take pity on me. Like, all right, you can, you can, you can have a beer with us, you know, like, all right, I'll, I'll have a beer and I'll go, all right, you guys, you guys can complain about me now. I'm going to leave. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Um, that kind of, it's a very similar question. So you may, it may be the same, but what are, what are some things that you, you would share having really a, a vast, uh, amounts of experience and such a variety of things, especially, you know, being from LA County and then going to a, you know, a smaller place and, and being a chief and, and I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with the, the work you've done down there. And I looked back, uh, when I talked to you the other day and the first time I met you with uh, SLP, I have almost seven pages of notes that day. And, uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, but when we did a team leader class at Santa Maria, when uh, another instructor would be talking, you were generous enough to uh, give me a pass. And so I just wandered around the building interviewing people about you and about the department and what they thought and what was good and bad. And just because, uh, your, your agency is very similar to mine. And so I interviewed a veteran working out like at 530 in the morning when I was in the gym. And I interviewed a guy just getting off FTO. And uh, I walked around and just kind of asked questions about how things worked and learned about the culture and all that. And uh, and, and I really walked away. I, I learned a lot that week from the students and then from all those people that were just willing to talk to me and just see how things were. And you're your blueprint, your fingerprint was on everything that I, everybody I talked to uh, mm. in some form or the other. And uh, that, that shows how much effort you put into the culture. Uh, yeah. it, it was very, it was very impressive. Brent and I talked about that a lot uh, when I was done, just how, 
how we look at our little sphere of the world and what can we do with the people that we serve, you know, below right. us to uh, affect that. So, so looking at new tactical leaders, right? We spend a lot of time training uh, SWAT team leaders and commanders and Kato's doing a demonstration response class now and we're delving into attack medical stuff and some other stuff. Yeah. And, but it, it, from someone who, who was a team leader and now has gone all the way to executive level and has done multiple reviews uh, throughout the country of, of different major tactical events, what, what are a couple of the things that you might share with those new tactical leaders? Well, um, the first thing, Marcus, would be, uh, and we've already talked about this a little bit, I think, uh, I think you, you've got two primary areas of focus. One is on your mission, the importance of your mission, and one is on your people uh, and the obligation that you owe to your people. Um, as a leader, you have a tremendous obligation to the people that you lead, I believe. And in SWAT, for instance, uh, good or bad leadership can, can be the difference between, literally be, be, be the difference between life or death. You know, I don't mean to over-dramatize it, but it can be. It can, you know, poor leadership can lead to, to real disasters, you know, and loss of life. But even as a leader in an administrative setting, to ask yourself, do you, do you have uh, an influence over the quality of life that, that your people have, the people that work for you, with you, you know? Can you make their lives better or can you make their lives miserable? And uh, I think we've all seen people work for leaders that make them miserable, <laughs> you know? Uh, you can have a tremendous impact on the people that work for you, or I even, I hate saying for you, but, you know, under your direction. And, um, and you can make them their life, their burden light or heavy. And, and to the point where it can affect their family life, it can affect their, their happiness overall, their willingness to come to work. I mean, who wants to come to work and work for somebody that treats them poorly or, or is so self-absorbed and, and this kind of thing, you know? So you were kind enough to mention the people at Santa Maria. I think the reason that they, you got positive responses about me and the, and the culture was good was because I, I, that's something I focused on and worked hard to achieve is that I wanted them to know that they were valued, every single one of them, and that I cared about them and that, uh, that uh, what they did was important. That's where the mission thing plays in too, you know? And I think as a leader, it, it might sound corny to you, but it's never inappropriate as a leader to talk about the importance of what we do and the nobility of what we do. It's funny, uh, that might sound corny and there might be a guy in the back row at briefing that thinks, oh, what's this all about, you know? But your people will appreciate you for it because they, most of our folks uh, in this business, they, they joined this job because they had beliefs and they cared about what they're doing. And it's good to hear from their supervisors that what they do is important and it has a, a, an effect on the quality of people's lives. I, I'm gonna tell you a real quick story. It's one I do uh, on a slide and a leadership little uh, thing that I, that I, present sometimes. Uh, I went, you know, I've been going to every MTOA national conference since the uh, late 80s. And there's usually, uh, you know, they've gotten very big now, a thousand people or so show up at them. And uh, there's, there's a thing on the first morning, uh, an administrative meeting that you go to, and they talk about innocuous junk, like, you know, uh, where the weapons room is to, you know, store your weapons, where the 
how to get lunch, you know, where to, where to pay for your lunches, what time the 10K run is, whatever, you know, they have all this, this junk, you know, like that, basically. And, and I went, I remember one morning, it was in Salt Lake City, and I really didn't want to get up and go to that meeting, but I had to go fly the flag, you know, and be there as a director. And, and I went there, and I went in not really feeling uh, great about going. I didn't really care, you know, it was all stuff I'd heard a hundred times before. And Marcus, I walked out an hour later feeling good and feeling good about myself and feeling a, a part of something important there. And I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. And I asked myself, why is that? What, what happened during that administrative meeting? I'll tell you what, you know, we posted the colors as we always do, you know, and, and, and sang the national anthem and said a prayer, you know, and uh, had an invocation as, as you usually do. And we had... Um, there was a, a small boy, uh, he's passed away at this point now, but he was terminally ill and he always wanted to be a SWAT officer. That's always what he wanted to be. And, and one of the guys, uh, Mike Foreman, a wonderful guy, that's a board member, uh, emeritus like me that works for Point Blank Body Armor now, he had a vest made for the kid and they gave it, gave it to the kid up there and everything. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place, you know? And all these things happened, all these dynamics. And then along with the usual administrative stuff, but here's the thing, Marcus, we went in there as a, as a thousand people that were individuals and we came out more as one because we, we, we're, we're patriotic, you know, we, we pledge allegiance to our, our flag, you know, we, we, we worship in our own way, you know, uh, had that invocation, we came together as a group to celebrate what we do and to get ready to be better police officers and what it was, Marcus, it was a, an affirmation of the values that we have, uh, that we hold together. And uh, I think that's important. And, you, and it's a feel good, it's a thing that can make you feel good and remind you of how important when you see this little kid up there and you go, this is why we do what we do. We do it for people like this. We do it for our kids and we do it for our families and our communities. And um, uh, that's good stuff to talk about. I'm not saying you should go sing the Star Spangled Banner briefing every day or something. But I mean, as a leader to talk to your people about the importance of what we do and how the community depends on them and be, be sincere about it and, and, uh, and talk uh, the importance to uh, back each other up and, and uh, look out for one another. And uh, that's all important stuff. And your troops will love you for it, quite frankly. And I think that's what I tried to do at, uh, at Santa Maria was uh, show them that I cared about them individually and showed them that I, I personally cared about what we did for a living as a mission and, uh, and that what we did was important. And I, and I tried to uh, relay that to them on a regular basis as, as often as I could. And, and that's a, another point, uh, Marcus, is that uh, to me, leadership requires um, constant work and thought about the act of leading. In other words, uh, I would look now and again, I've got a notebook that I've kept notes in. You talked about notes that you wrote on something that I, you know, that I said one time. And I go back through that thing regularly and I look at, at, at the, I've actually I've got the doggone thing right here. And I've kept notes in this journal for, for years about things I've read in books or things I've experienced or whatever. And, um, and things that I think are important in terms of, uh, leadership and I'll go through that thing and I'll look and I'll say have I done this lately what have I done lately 
to show my people that I care about this? Or have I been to a briefing lately? Have I been to a, a, a detective bureau meeting lately? Have I, have I gone and checked in with the traffic folks lately and taken them to breakfast or something like that to show them that I care about them? It, it, it requires constant maintenance. That's the thing about leadership that makes it such a task. Is it's never a task that you, that you complete and say, well, I did that. I achieved that level. I'm a good leader. Or, you know, we did a good, now it's not time to go do something else. It, you know, you have to work. Uh, you get that plane flying and it takes work to keep that thing airborne or it's going to corkscrew in the ground if you take your hands off the controls. So you have to always work at it and ask yourself, what have I done lately? And one of those things, Marcus, is to talk about those values, those common values uh, that we share and why it's important what we do. So to get back to it real quick, people and mission, your people and your mission. And then uh, the next thing I would say is, is be your own man uh, or your own person. Uh, uh, sometimes leader, being a good leader means doing things that people don't like necessarily. And, and I'll give you a, a quick example. Uh, it's gonna sound silly, but uh, you know, back when I first came on the department, nobody wore seatbelts back in the mid seventies. And guys would actually cut the seatbelts out of radio cards. I know you find that hard to believe. <laughs> Officers would actually take their buck knives, you know, and cut the seatbelts out. And uh, it's a safety it was all, issue. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was all, oh, you don't want those damn things. You know, if we get an ambush, you gotta, gotta get out of the car, you don't wanna wear those. And we lost more people to traffic accidents back in those days than we did to, to shootings, you know. And I went to a lot of funerals with officers that were killed in traffic accidents over the years. We didn't have the airbags and all the fancy stuff that we do now. And, and people didn't wear their seatbelts and, and we were dying right and left. When I started in SWAT in the mid eighties, we didn't have helmets, we wore ball caps. You remember the old pictures of the SWAT guys in the ball caps. Well, we got helmets. Uh, it was typical. Uh, they gave us like five helmets per team. So there wasn't enough for everybody, you know. And so I'm thinking, okay, did the guys with the most important heads, did the smart guys get these? I mean, how does this work anyway? But what was really interesting, Marcus, was I had guys that didn't want to wear them. Now, you wouldn't find a SWAT guy today that wouldn't wear a helmet. But back then, and I'll tell you what it was, it messed their hair up or they didn't think the chicks you know, it had a low chicks dig it factor or whatever, you know, and, and uh, I had to make them wear helmets. I finally had to say, look, you wear your helmet or you're off the entry team. You know, you're going to be on containment. And then eventually we all got helmets, everybody wore. Years later, I'm a lieutenant and we got shoulder protection for the guys. And I said, nobody wanted to wear those. And then I had to do the same thing. Wear it or you're, or you're going to be my radio man at the command post if you don't have your shoulder protection on so what's funny is sometimes we have to fight uh, to, to, to impose things that are best for our people, even though they don't want it, you know, and you have to, that's part of being a leader is making that decision. And that's going to lead me into the last thing, which is more of a tactical issue, but it's, it's a leadership tactical thing is uh, one of those things, and I've been preaching about it for years, is uh, getting people to slow down, you know. And uh, this, this uh, love affair that we have in this business or uh, a lot of places with speed, you know, speed, surprise and overwhelming force and a lot, you know, that just doesn't cut it and doesn't cut it in, a, in an age where, uh, you know, you're given knock and notice and everything else too. And, and we lose more people uh, and have more bad shootings on dynamic movement stuff, you know, on rapid movement through uh, locations on warrants that 
and it's got to come to an end. And, and I'll tell you what, uh, there was a time that people had a tolerance for our mistakes and that time is gone too. You know, we can't be going in there and shooting the wrong person or whatever, you know, under the guise of speed and surprise and all that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, slow it down if, and, and that's, that's a leadership decision. I know that there are leaders out there that, that know they probably ought to uh, push for uh, uh, different tactics in that respect, you know, get away from the rapid movement. And their troops don't want to do it because they've been lucky up to this point and they've had success with it because they've been lucky more than anything. And uh, it's time to suck it up, be a good leader and say, no, we're going to look at some different options and do things a little bit differently here. So uh, there I got in my soapbox a little bit too. <laughs> That's good stuff, sir. I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack. We could go a couple hours <laughs> that, uh, that last sentence. And that's what uh, Marcus and I love getting to talk with you every time we get to hear you speak and read the things that, uh, that you're writing. And, and Marcus, Marcus told you a little bit about taking notes. And, uh, and uh, one of the things I remember you saying when you, uh, you let off one of our, our presentations before is that you, we asked you to describe yourself. And you said, well, I'm a lover, I'm a fighter, and I'm a big bull rider. I don't know if you <laughs> I was like, I, I'm going to like this guy when he came in. In all seriousness, you talked about was your sense of optimism and that how as the head of your agency, you felt like it was incumbent upon you to set the tone for that. And that when people would come up and ask you, you know, and when you had a, a hard day and things were tough, that you would try to set an optimistic tone. And I, I, I see that you're, you're an, an, an actually um, an optimist and hearing you tell a story about, you know, going to the NTOA conference and not wanting yeah. to but you, you kind of came out there. I think that's an important reset that we don't talk about a lot within yep. organizational leadership, um, within agencies, because we do see so much negativity and we are prone to so much of the, the bad things that are coming down. Just having that sense of optimism as a leader, not to, not Pollyanna, not to everything is great, not everything is rainbows and unicorns, yep. but really setting the tone for that sense of, of, of optimism. And, and I, I could tell when you talk about it, you truly believe it. You're sharing what's in your heart and you're moving those those type of things on, but I think that's a, I think that's an important component and something that's sometimes lost in leadership. It's funny, Brent. Uh, what happens is that uh, that how do how do I put that? Uh, it comes back at you and raises your own boat. You know, we all have bad days. There, I have bad days. We all have bad days. You know, we all we all have things that you go to work and you're feeling, you know, a little beat up in life and everything, but. Uh, when I would have an officer or a, a civilian employee dispatcher, whoever, you know, hey, sir, how's it going? I'm not going to, you know, I tell them, uh, and I truly, uh, I, I'm not bullshitting them, but I, I, I always try to be optimistic and I say, hey, I'm great, you know, or I make a joke about, it. hey, I'm living the dream. I'm working here with you. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And you'd laugh and you'd smile and you'd and ask them how they're doing. And the next thing you know, you walk away feeling better yourself, you know. Uh, that rising tide raises all boats or whatever, you know. Uh, uh, no, I think leaders can't have bad days. My problems can't become my people's problem. You know, I can't be having a bad day and come make everybody else miserable because I'm having a bad day. You know, that's, uh, I have to deal with my own problems, you know, and that's not being disingenuous or anything. That's just recognizing the fact that, that I owe them that optimism and I owe them uh, I owe them a, a comfortable working environment and a, a hopefully a happy working environment you know that they want to come and do their job and whatnot so uh, I, and I don't find that disingenuous you know and, and I I uh, I thank you for that because I 
I look I had to apologize to to people twice this week because I was curt or yeah. Yeah. or and and one you know two guys that come up and I go hey man this has been bothering me for like three days and I finally see you too and I gotta apologize I good for you frustrated with something else and I came in and you were being nice and you asked me a question and I could have answered it nicely and I didn't I answered it aggressively and you know and what? adversarially and thanks for not taking the bait and fighting with me and that's Marcus, my fault Marcus good for you and that'll stay with them for years they'll remember that too uh, that's and that's uh, I think another important uh, leadership quality is uh, uh, you, you demonstrate a degree of humility in that. You know, I mean, some guys, as, as particularly new leaders, uh, you've asked a lot of questions about advice to new leaders. They feel they can't show weakness. They feel they can't show uh, ignorance on something. That, you know, they can't say, "Geez, I really don't know the answer to that," or whatever. You know, and uh, uh, all that does is. Uh, that look, looks disingenuous if you make something up or you, uh, or, you know, or, or makes, or you come out with the wrong answer or what have you. And, uh, you know, to, to apologize to your folks, if it's, if it's uh, appropriate to, to tell them, Hey, I don't know, but let's figure this thing out. You know, uh, you'll get nothing but respect for that sort of thing, I think. Well, unfortunately I say a lot of dumb stuff, so I'm good at apologizing, <laughs> but, uh, you, they, you know, we forget this. Let me hear the dumb stuff that he says. <laughs> I'm going to mute that part out. Um, you know, you you bring up a problem I think we have in our profession, and uh, there's different ways to say it, but uh, we spend so much time, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars picking the right people, yes. screening them, and then training them to be bullshit detectors. And then uh, somehow we can allow ourselves to think they're going to buy ours and, <laughs> and they're not. That's a great right. Point. And so yep. when I don't know something, they already know, I don't know. And yep. nothing I say is going to change that. And if uh, I make a bad call, they know it's a bad call. And, yep. uh, and, and pretending that it's not, isn't going to help us. And just, it, it's interesting. Uh, thankfully I have a lot of people in my life to tell me I'm wrong. So I don't have that problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's interesting how it, that can really, you know, we all have to be, you, you mentioned humility and, you know, be careful not to believe your own story all the time. You yeah. Know? Yep. Well, you know what, uh, Marcus, I actually, I, I don't remember the whole, everything I wrote on it, but I did a little article, you know, I've, I've been honored to write a, a series of articles, you know, uh, on, on leadership topics, you know, for the NTOA for a few years. And, uh, and I did one on humility one time, and I'll just say the the what I mean by that is, you, being humble doesn't mean uh, that you're you can't be dynamic, you can't be forceful, you can't be uh, you know you can have be a dynamic, forceful leader, you know that that'll that, that can make decisions and and all this kind of stuff, and still be humble. Your your the humility comes in where you're you have humility in your obligation. You know, to me, it's humbling to, to be uh, responsible for other people, you know, as a leader. And I think you have to humble yourself uh, in that way and say, geez, I have, a, I have an immense responsibility to these folks. And it's a humbling experience to be responsible for them and to know that I uh, 
control sometimes their safety, the quality of their life, the quality of their work experience, at least, you know, which, which usually bleeds over into their, their private lives and whatnot, you know, that's a humbling responsibility to me. And it's one that you should take seriously, you know, and where people lose that humility uh, is where they become too involved in their own life, their own uh, advancement within their career, their, you know, whatever, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I think you have to humble yourself before that responsibility to your folks. You know? So yeah, well, well, well said as usual. Thank you. Uh, so Brent, uh, Brent's got to step out and report to the city council, but uh, just like him to get the last word. So, <laughs> so he, uh, in the middle of this, he threw in two questions as he was leaving. So uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go to those and I'll say thank you for mentioning that. And uh, I would say that the things that keep me up at night, uh, besides making just a bad decision in general about a, uh -huh. you know, a major event, is more um, how I miscommunicated uh, my true intent or feelings or... Right or I just let somebody down, you know, I, I let, I let somebody else down recently and, uh, and it wasn't on purpose. It was just a failure on my part. And, uh, and it really affected this, this person immensely and they let me have it and, and I deserved it. They were respectful, but they let me have it. Right. And, and no amount of apologizing can take that back. Right. And so right. it's a lesson. I, I, I stopped. I, I went, sat in my office by myself, wrote some notes to myself to remember, you know, the impact when you just get too busy running in the hamster wheel yeah. and you forget something that may really in the course of my day might be minor, but affects and impacts this person's life. And uh, I just, I sat there for a little while because it kind of put me in the dumps the rest of the day and not feeling sorry for myself, but just going, hey man, that was such a, a little thing that I could have done. And it, and it would have had a 180 degree difference in this person's life. And uh, so that's what you're talking about. And, and you got to own it and you got to talk about it. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to make too many of those, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> absolutely not. No. No. Um, Brent, Brent wanted to ask you this question. Uh, we've been talking a lot at Cato and in different podcasts here and, and, uh, and actually uh, articles about one thing our profession eh, mostly you know, uh, it's different every organization, but talking about the, the tactical science part of, of handling events and, and training, and we talk about the end state and concept of operations. And uh -huh. so we're trying to go through those principles that I think are, we don't talk about enough because we're mm -hmm. busy meeting all the post requirements and everything else, and we run out of time and money. So um, Brent wanted to talk a little bit about a crossover between setting the end state as an incident or tactical commander and vision setting as an organizational leader. And uh, Brent and I spent a lot of time talking about that, being involved in Cato uh, leadership and then in our own organizations. Um, I see those as very similar. You know, uh, I look at the end state as what do I want this to look like when it's done? And then mm -hmm. there may be multiple objectives or missions to accomplish that. And in the organization, for me, I see those as, as very similar tasks. What do I want my organization to be? And then, and then how do I get there? But you, but you've actually done this. I have, I've, I've done it on smaller unit levels, uh -huh. but uh, any, any advice or any insight on that? Uh, <laughs> well, not, uh, not much other than get some good help along the way to, to do it. Uh, 
in the case of an organizational setting, you know, uh, uh, I couldn't, um, I tried to set a culture if you, if you would, you know, and, and I had ideas of my own that I contributed along the way, but I got a lot of the best ideas from the commanders that I had too, you know, and that's, it just kind of goes back to something I talked about before, uh, Marcus, that listening to your folks, because, you know, uh, a tactical operation as, as complex and as um, uh, serious as the outcomes may be, uh, they're usually uh, generally small, you know, and, and they have a generally short duration and that kind of thing. When you talk about an end state, you know, uh, whereas in an organizational setting, it, there's a lot of parts, a lot of moving parts to it, so many different things to take into account. And, and as it grows exponentially like that, you need more minds involved in it, uh, you know, contributing ideas uh, to, to how to get there. So, uh, you know, I was always very um, uh, vocal, if you will, uh, uh, not in a harsh way or anything, but I mean, I had regular staff meetings with my commanders and lieutenants and, and shared what my vision for the department was and talked about values and those things that I, you know, that I talked about before. And then uh, I, and I would contribute my own, uh, make my own contributions. I'll give you one that, that I was very proud of. And that's, uh, we started a Sergeant's Academy uh, within our department. And it's just a one week, you know, deal. But, you know, as you know, in California, when you make Sergeant, you go off to that two week post uh, you know, supervisor school and whatnot. Uh, you know, we all joke they take the left lobe of your brain out or whatever when they send you to that. And and it's a good school, uh, but it it's it's not department specific. You know, it's very generic and it deals with a lot of liability issues and a lot of issues in the, involving uh, recording of events and you know investigations and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they would sergeants would come back for that from that and it but it didn't give them a sense of what we wanted as an agency you know is it what we what we valued as an agency and what i expected of them as a supervisor so um we put together a one-week sergeant's academy of our own that talked about leadership and talked about you know for instance pursuit policy you know we had a pretty restrictive pursuit policy but why that was so important and what you know what we're trying to do Liability was not the primary concern. Safety was the primary concern. I don't want to lose an officer or I don't want to lose a family of four chasing some daggone traffic violator, you know, that kind of thing. And, but, but they need to hear that from the leadership within the department. They need to hear that from me and they need to understand what this is about, you know, and why it's important and what the expectations are for them as supervisors. And, and uh, it was really a, a, a deep dive into the culture that we were trying to achieve on the, the police department. So that was one piece that I am happy to say I contributed on. That was my idea to have that thing. And then they, the staff put together a wonderful package on the thing. I spent the first four hours with the officers, you know, with the, and, and what we did, uh, Marcus, we, we uh, expanded it. At first we put our sergeants through it, and then we started putting sergeant candidates through it. Once they once they uh, took the test and if they made the final list or the final uh, eligibility list, if you will, whether or not they were ended up getting promoted, we sent them to this class. We thought, how can it hurt, you know? And they, you know, they kind of learned what it was all about a, a little bit and, and it makes them a better candidate the next time around too, you know? So, but that was just one little piece. 
I depended on my staff to come up with the ideas to how to get to where we wanted to go, you know, and they came up with a much broader array and they are much more in tune with, you know, what do they need in DB to make this happen? What do they need in, you know, this other area of the department to make this happen? What's the, you know, uh, how do we involve our records clerks, you know, in this, in this desire to, to be a better department, you know, and that, this kind of stuff. So, um, uh, in an organizational setting, I think you just need to make sure that the lines of communication are open and that you're, and that you are um, uh, asking for these things, you know, from your people and, and implementing. And that's the other thing is you can't ask people for ideas and then ignore their ideas. <laughs> if they have an idea, make it happen, you know, put them in charge of it or whatever, make, make it happen. And and they'll love it, you know. They'll they'll love the fact that that they had input and they actually were, were able to institute some change. You know, one thing that's great about you know one thing that was tough about LASD, there's eighteen thousand people on that department. You know, uh, total about ten thousand swarm. If you had a good unless it, unless the very top of the organization wanted something to happen, if you just had a good idea about a change in policy or procedure. Holy smokes, it took two years to get that up and down all the chains of command for approval. And then when it came out the other end, it didn't look anything like how it started, you know, because everybody felt like they had to put their own little twist on it. Uh, one of the things I loved about a, a city the size, or a department the size of Santa Maria, a couple hundred people, is you could actually institute change within a couple of weeks, you know, make something happen and get people trained up on it, explain why we're going to do it this way now. And, uh, and uh, you could get things done. And the more people that you can involve in that, uh, the, the better. And I think, uh, you know, we were pretty successful at that, you know, and the end state there is always moving. I, you know, it's funny, I'm almost jealous. I've only been gone for four months and I've seen some of the things that they're doing. You know, they're, they've done some great things. And I'm thinking, why didn't you come up with that idea when I was there, that was a great <laughs> idea. But the fact of the matter, Marcus, is we had other things to worry about at that time. It's a process. It's always changing. Yeah, absolutely. And they're doing wonderful things. I'm really, really proud of them down there right now. So that's that's pretty neat. Let me ask you this. Uh, do you remember your very first SWAT call out? Yeah, I do. I remember parts of it. Uh, and I remember a uh, uh, one thing that one takeaway I got from it there was interesting, uh, but it was a barricaded suspect of some kind. I can't remember what he'd done, if it was a murder suspect or whatever, in a, in a, in a like a three bedroom track house, you know, we, we gassed it. We, uh, we used aerial flashbangs, you know, that we had back then. And, and uh, you know, it was, so it was fun. I, you know, nothing beats a good barricade, you know, when you can draw it, all that stuff, you know, so uh, and we and we got the guy in custody successfully and didn't uh, didn't hurt him or you know so it was a, a good successful operation, but uh, now this this call out this was my first call out as a team leader and uh, as as you know as the team leader of record and all this kind of stuff, and I remember I felt like man I can't believe I'm in charge of this and I don't know what the hell I'm doing here and all this kind of stuff you know and and. Uh, it was funny, Marcus, I had uh, a couple Tootsie Roll Pops in my fatigue pants, you know, down in the cargo pocket there, you know. And I remember I took out a Tootsie Roll Pop, I popped it in my mouth, and I kind of leaned back against the radio car when we were getting ready to go to gas or getting ready to do whatever, you know. And I just thought, if you can't 
if you don't know what you're doing, at least look like you know what you're doing. <laughs> you know? And it was so funny because it all went well. It all went great. I really uh, depended a great deal on my scout on that deal. And uh, the next morning I came into the gym and there were a couple of old heads in there. And they said, hey, Phil, we were just talking about what a great job you did yesterday on this deal or whatever. And I thought, boy, that's funny. It's uh, like I said, uh, you know, uh, that's that was I knew this as a patrol sergeant, but it reinforced it as a team leader was uh, calm is contagious, you know, and panic is contagious, too. You know, you know, that's true. And it's like as a leader look like you know what it doesn't matter you know we're taking rounds whatever just go with the flow you know hey we're going to get through this uh everybody you know uh, we'll get through this together and uh be calm and uh and carry on you know and uh that's kind of what i tried to project was uh, a sense of calm and knowing what i was doing and it served me very well throughout the years you know i mean people always uh, through the years used to comment on how how uh how relaxed I seemed during times of crisis or calm or whatever through things. And, you know, I was like that duck, the proverbial duck on the water, you know, that looks so calm on the surface, but the feet are going crazy underneath. <laughs> and that's, that's part of the deal though, but that's part of your obligation as a leader is to maintain, you know, if you look like you're out of control, then everything's going to be out of control, you know? And uh, so anyway, that was, uh, that was funny. Cause I remember that, that I popped that tootsie roll in my mouth and, just kind of looked like I knew what I was doing there, you know, and, and what's funny is it, it, the next morning I've got people telling me what a great job I did on the thing. I thought, geez, that's funny, you know, because I felt like I was, uh, you know, a duck out of water there. Anyway. Sometimes our uh, our feelings don't accurately depict what's going on. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on well, either side. Know, on, on a serious note, uh, Marcus, I remember now years later, you know, now I've spent 18, 20 years or whatever at SCB, and, and uh, we had a deputy that was murdered um, uh, down in Hawaiian Gardens, uh, Jerry Ortiz, who's a gang uh, deputy. And uh, so I know now I'm rolling down there to the call out. Uh, we're searching, we're going to go search for the suspect. And, uh, and I know as I'm driving down there after all these years in this business now, what I'm going to be faced with when I get there, you know. And especially in a place like Los Angeles, there was probably, I mean, conservatively 300 police officers and deputy sheriffs and whatnot. There were so many helicopters overhead and, you know, that you couldn't hear, you know, you had to get in a car to use the radio because you couldn't hear because of you know, all the news helicopters. And we had a couple of helicopters going and, you know, uh, uh, all these, you knew you were going to be inundated when you get there. And so, uh, as a leader going up to something like that, I knew that as the team commander from SEB, if I look like I'm, you know, uh, flustered by this, it's going to send a message to everybody out there. And everybody looks to you when you show up on something like that, you know. So look calm, look determined, take a deep breath. You know, while I was driving down there, even though I've been doing that for 20 years, you know, I'm going through the basics in my head. What do I need to know? What are the questions I'm going to ask when I get there? You know, how am I going to approach this thing? And be sure to present that image. And uh, so much of leadership is not, it's by design. Leadership, good leadership is by design. And uh, it's not a personality thing. It's not, it's it's by, you know, you 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 want to think about what you're, you know, you talked about end state. What are you trying to achieve here? What, what are you trying to, and part of the leadership thing is what, 
what do you want to show people? What do you want people to see of you, you know, as you approach this problem and everything? So anyway, it's uh, 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 projecting that sense of control and, uh, and determination is so important, you know, uh, to a leader, so. Huge. No, no, great point, because uh, we've all worked for someone that was timid yeah. or unsure. And, yeah. and then it, even if they're right, you're, you're left with a, not a very solid foundation. Well, if, yeah, because if they look like they're questioning it, you know, well, how are you supposed to have confidence in it or whatever, you know? And, uh, and like I said, it's just a matter of, uh, it doesn't mean you've got to go out and start barking orders to everybody, but you, you show up with a sense of purpose, ask, once again, ask reasonable questions. Don't start telling people right away. Ask, find out exactly what we're dealing with here. You know, I mean, uh, that's police work 101 too, is that how many times you've been, you know, how many times you go to a call as a radio car cop and, and it's what they said on the, on the call. You know, I mean, it's always something different when you get there, you know, so like everything else in life, get there and ask some reasonable questions, find out what you're actually dealing with and, and you can start to formulate good plans along the way, but just have a plan and look like, you know, project, be, be conscious about the image that you're projecting to other people. That's whether or not it's how you dress, how you, you know, I mean, the, the, the quality of your uniform appearance, whatever, project a professional image, project, project that image as a leader. You know, if that's, if that's what you're tasked with doing, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, that's part of the process, the leadership process is, is uh, being conscious of what you're projecting to other people. Yeah, yeah and uh, that takes emotional and mental effort, right? And, yes. and, yeah. uh, and sometimes you, for me, I catch myself, you know, uh, like everybody else, working, overworked, having too much to do, and I'm spinning mm -hmm. in my little hamster wheel. And you, if you don't be purposeful, you're going to make mistakes and say things you shouldn't or come off uh, in a totally unintended way. So uh, since I talked to you about your first call out, what was the funniest call out that you remember you've been part of? I, you know what, I, I thought about that. I thought of a really historical thing, but I don't, I can't repeat it on a <laughs> professional podcast. Well, a lot of, uh, a lot of law enforcement is a unprofessional humor for yeah, sure. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you one that was just kind of funny that, that has some sentimental value to me. Uh, we had a, a barricaded suspect. It was around, if it wasn't Christmas Eve, it was the 23rd. It was right around Christmas and it might've been Christmas Eve, but I, I know we had a string of Christmases there where we got something every dog on Christmas or, you know, Christmas Eve. But this was, uh, I think it was down in the city of Norwalk and it was a barricaded suspect. This guy had killed his brother that night. Uh, and um, it was in a little bungalow apartment kind of thing. And uh, he had been talking to the negotiators. He goes, yep, uh, there, uh, one person had got out of the house and said, hey, he's killed his brother, brother's dead on the floor. And they said, hey, no, uh, you know, the negotiators are talking to him and said, hey, maybe we can save him. You know, oh, he goes, oh no, no, he's dead, I've killed him. You know, and he goes, I'm killing anybody that comes up to the door here, you know, and he was made no bones about it that he was gonna take shots at us if he had an opportunity. And um, so anyway, we decided as an entry team, we were gonna stage uh, in the adjacent little apartment, you know, bungalow, you know, because the, the front door of this place would put us pretty close to his front door, but it was right next door there, just the one wall, you know, in between kind of thing. And so we're trying to be super quiet 
and get ourselves through a window into this adjacent apartment. And a dear friend, my, my dearest friend, uh, he was a radio car partners with me for 10 years at SCB. And then we both went back as lieutenants for uh, of the six years I was there as a lieutenant, five of the years we worked together as lieutenants too. So he's a, a very, very dear friend. He just passed away this last August. And, and uh, anyway, his name is Jimmy. And uh, Jimmy was uh, my scout that day and, and I'm the team leader and we're trying to get through this window. And, and he's, he's the first guy going through the window. And we're trying to be super quiet because we know if we make a considerable noise, this guy is gonna start busting maybe some rounds through the wall at us. And Jim steps through and he steps on a stuffed animal that starts singing Old MacDonald had a farm. You know? <laughs> and, and it sounded like it was being belted out, you know, and it was, I started, I couldn't help myself. I start cracking up, you know, and he's, he's shaking this animal, trying to get it to stop, you know, in the room. And uh, it, it was funny because, you know, sometimes in the midst of the most uh, uh, critical times and everything, the things that'll just make you laugh. I, I mean, we were all giggling and, you know, we were like a bunch of kids in a library at that point, you know, trying not to laugh too loud. And, and this thing is you know, like, we were waiting for this guy to start shooting, but it was just, it, was and it, just, it gets catchy and then no one yeah. can stop. <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely did he receive uh any gifts after that like uh farm animal little plastic oh, no. farm animals or anything no, for the rest actually, of his life uh, i actually wrote the story up in a uh in a in a book that uh, you know uh, john coleman who started the nqa years ago and, and was an uh scb longtime scb member uh John wrote a couple of books about the Bureau and, and I wrote a little piece on it about that incident and that it was kind of funny to memorialize it, you know, but anyway, no, there's obviously, uh, there's so many things that you could laugh at over the years, you know, and of course, as cops, we usually see humor and some dark things too, you know, so, but that was one that has a little sentimental value to me, it was just trying to keep from giggling there while he was horrified that this guy was gonna start shooting when he stepped on that stuff. Anyway. And it happened to be a kid, kid thing that made it funnier yeah yep hey uh before we go i know you got stuff to do and uh mm -hmm. i want to be respectful of your time but uh i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you to give us a little bit of a historical perspective on where we're at today and, and what i mean by that is uh for a lot of us in this profession uh the the redefinition of policing and the social contract we have with the community and mm -hmm. That's, that's part of the cycle of our profession, but yeah. it's, it's the first time most of us have experienced it, and, and particularly uh, the civil unrest and yep. the protests, but it's, it's not new to our profession, and it's not new to what I, I think historically would be the cycle of how we redefine things, but, yeah. but you've lived through this before, and, and I'm yep. sure your perspective on, on where we're at uh, is educational for those of us who are just going through this. Yeah. It's funny, Marcus, uh, I often ask myself uh, in this last summer, you know, as we went through the, all the unrest this last summer, and I would ask myself, I wonder who this is harder on, those of us with 30, 40 years in this business, or those that are just starting the business and have 30 years ahead of them. I actually think it's tougher on us older guys, to be honest with you. Uh, because it's so disheartening and and the youngsters it is new to them and they uh but they're they're 
I think they've grown up in a in an era where people question authority more, question law enforcement, that kind of stuff. So it, it doesn't come. I, I I was amazed at the resiliency that my officers had uh, in the face of this, as opposed to my lieutenants and, and commanders that were really. Uh, they, you know, they, there was more talk of, I can't wait till I can retire, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, uh, where the youngsters just went out and did their job and kept their good humor about them and everything, you know, the differences, Marcus, I tell you, I don't know, uh, it's very difficult to me, I, I think, I guess the biggest difference is in terms of, uh, it underscores the need for us to be professionals, you know, we, we bring these things on ourselves a lot, uh, without, uh, I don't know, obviously, I've never been one of those people that, that, that says, uh, this is what they should have done on something that happened 2000 miles away, or, or, you know, how could, you know, I, I don't critique things I don't know about, but it's pretty obvious that a couple of the capers, a few of the capers that have been the, created tremendous notoriety and, and problems in this country are things that could have been avoided and really, uh, weren't our best work, you know, as law enforcement, you know, so we're the genesis of these things. And, and so we have to be professional. Uh, we have to be on our game because the public is, is not forgiving of mistakes of that nature anymore. You know, now technology changes, training changes, everything changes. The one thing that doesn't change is the people involved. We've got wonderful people doing this job and they still, a, a lot of them, some of them, and they always have some of them take it because it's a regular job with benefits and it's got a retirement at the end of it and all that kind of stuff. But there's still an awful lot of people that do this job. And, and it's the kinds of people that are watching this podcast uh, because they put their own time into something like this, you know, uh, that they, they, they started this job because they, they wanted to do something for their community. They wanted to, to make a difference. They have, uh, those values that we talked about earlier, you know, they share those values. And that's the, the, the big thing. It's a people business and we owe it to them to give them the best training that we can give them, the best support that we can give them as leaders uh, that we can, uh, like I said, they've got a burden out there. They've got a tough job, tougher than ever. And we owe it to them to be positive with them and show them that we got their backs and do everything we can for them. And that's, that's something that hasn't changed over the years. It's a people business, you know. Uh, uh, the bar has been raised. Uh, we've raised the bar a lot ourselves. I mean, we're very professional in this state. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things that uh, that I found. I, I think I've taught SWAT classes and stuff like that in 30 some odd states in this country. And, and, uh, and I have been surprised over the years at how different the bar is can be in terms of training you know and expectations and and professionalism and hiring and training and that kind of stuff uh, retention but you know we and it's one of the things that makes it tough on us here in california when we suffer for things that happen other places too and you're thinking heck they're demanding changes that we made 10 years ago you know and they're still uh, you know demanding this stuff but um you know notwithstanding all that stuff it's a people business, Marcus, and that never changes. And uh, that's what we have to focus on as leaders, you know, as our, our folks and, uh, and the great people that sign up to do this job and, and sometimes take a beating doing it. Uh, so 
they shouldn't take a beating from their leadership as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, you're right. We we uh, we hurt our own people a lot. Like yeah. that. I agreed. Yeah. It's uh, I, I will echo your sentiment. I uh, I'll, I'll share a story with you or or two. But Brent and I uh, talk a lot doing Cato stuff. And uh, at the end of the protest uh, last June, uh, mm -hmm. we had a lot of unrest in our town and some things went good, some things went poorly. And uh, uh, I'm on like hour 15 or something. Uh, I'm a lieutenant and the, uh, the troops are, are training their protest response. First time they've been together since all this yeah. stuff happened. So I'm on the phone with Brent and uh, we're, we're working on something for Cato. And I say, hey, I'll call you right back. I'm going to go check in with these guys. And and I go and there's all the guys lined up in mobile fuel force practicing their formations. And so I just kind of walk up and I said, hey, you know, I haven't, I'm listening, watching the sergeants work. And, and I look over and all these, I'll call them kids, but they're not kids. You know, they, yeah. they made yeah. me feel like they were kids at the time. They're, oh, yeah. they're, they're uh, basically smoking and joking yeah. and uh, having fun and getting ready. And hey, yep. I'm ready for the next one. And and uh, they come over and they're like, hey, it's great, you know, great to see you because I'm not in, in charge of that anymore at the time. I was calling to say how proud I was. You're coming over yeah. to say how proud I was of what they did and thank you. And and I get back in the car and I'll call Brent and I go, hey, you know all that miserable commiserating we're doing on the phone earlier uh, because we're in our hamster admin wheels and we're just stuck and we're all, you know, like we're fighting right. for budgets and all this other right. stuff. Those kids don't care about that. They're like, hey, man, I'm ready. When's the next one? Yep. And, uh, and I it just put a smile on our face and we're laughing because we're like, yeah, sometimes I miss those days. But, uh, yeah. you know, they're good people and, and they get the job done. And uh, the more I travel, uh, every time I get to do something for Cato, uh, I'll, I'll come back and I'll be, my batteries are recharged. And I'm like, yep. man, there are just some fantastic, excellent people doing this profession, just way smarter than me. And yep. uh, just super dedicated and, and their generations and generations and generations of them. And, yep. and uh, I don't know if you get that anywhere else in, in, in the country, just that high caliber of people um, yep. that are dedicated. It, it's very, every time I, I come back uh, just recharged of the quality of people that I get to meet. Yep. And, and what you said is absolutely true. And it underscores once again, the, the, uh, the obligation that we have to try to take care of them, you know, do our best for them too. So uh, the, the importance of that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chief, for your time. I really appreciate the talk as always. Uh, uh, hopefully I didn't pester as much as I normally do, but no. I, I always appreciate your patience. Uh, someone asked me the other day uh, how you were doing and uh, a Cato guy. And I said, man, he's doing great. He's traveling, visiting his family. He's doing yeah. all the stuff you're supposed to do. Yeah. You, you survived a, uh, a long career um, with lots of challenges, both physically and uh, mentally and emotionally. You survived all those things and you made us all better for it. And so yeah. thank so you, thank Mark. you for continuing uh, to contribute to us. Uh, we, uh, we read all those uh, articles you write for the N2A and they're still great and keep writing them. Because uh, <laughs> because we need them. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.